Hi, I'm Ashley, one of the producers here at Pitchfork Economics. And if you're a fan of the podcast, please let us know by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen, but especially on Apple. And we'll post a link in the show notes to make it super easy to do just that. Thanks so much. Now to the episode. Talking about rural America actually is one of our favorite subjects because it's such an important challenge for this country in particular. One of the problems with these rural communities is that you have all this wealth that's actually generated, but that wealth gets extracted out. There's no good policies being promoted to actually keep some of that wealth in the community. It's about having an opportunity to have a dignified middle-class life in the Correct. town where you grew up. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a pointed conversation about who gets what and why with one of America's most provocative capitalists. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, one of the things we've talked about a number of times on the podcast is the rising uh, spatial inequality in the U.S., right. the inequality between regions, between rural America, which lost a lot of jobs in the Great Recession and has not nearly recovered uh, even before right. the pandemic hit, and uh, the urban areas like uh, Seattle, which have been going gangbusters and doing great right. in the new economy. And right. it's really has come to the forefront recently in the COVID pandemic where, you know, just recently we're now seeing the pandemic really take hold in many rural areas in Washington state. That's where most of the caseloads yeah. are growing, but that's happening throughout the country. And it's, uh, it's not by accident. No. You know, what's super sad is that there was an un sort of a slowly unfolding economic crisis in rural America. And then COVID-19 came along and made it that much worse and made it, I think, you know, maybe this is a good thing, that much more obvious. From the fragility of the local economies to the lack of healthcare available in those, in those places, it really has been for most of rural America, and I, I suspect it's going to get a lot worse, a total shit show. And uh, of course, our Congress has been almost completely unhelpful, but it's highly problematic. And, and to be clear, you know, when we talk about this uh, geographic inequality, I'll, I'll use that term instead of spatial inequality. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> it seems a little more accessible yeah. and understandable. When we talk about this uh, rising geographic inequality, we're not saying that, oh, we need to make things equal. Uh, no. we, meet, we need to give people in small rural towns the exact same opportunities that we have here in Seattle, because that's impossible. There, it are, is. There, there, there's just certain you know, structural elements of the modern information economy, that agglomeration effect that requires innovative industries to concentrate in areas with very thick labor markets where there's a high density of highly educated specialists in these areas. 
And you're just not going to get that in, in small town America. But right. that doesn't mean there can't be opportunities there. It's not about yeah. having the same opportunities. It's about having an opportunity to have a dignified middle Correct. class life in the Correct. town where you grew up, where your parents grew up, where your grandparents grew up, instead of being told, well, you know, if if you want a job that pays more than seven twenty-five an hour, if you want to have access to a hospital within 200 miles of you, you know, <laughs> yeah. if you want to have a good education, well, you better pick up and leave and move to the big town. That's not the way it was. And yeah. that's uh, not the way it should be. And so when we talk about closing this gap, it's not about making everything the same. It's about equity, not equality. And uh, we don't have much equity today. I think the thing that, that we have to keep top of mind is that over the 40 year, you know, sort of the 40 year neoliberal period, you know, all of the policies that we had evolved before then to support prosperity in non-urban areas were eliminated or ignored or swept away. And as a consequence, you know, among them, you know, antitrust you know, which led to this massive wave of content, corporate concentration, which pulled all of the regional companies out of the rural areas and into the cities. And, you know, one of the consequences of that is that in the four-year period after the Great Recession, there were, uh, by the way, these numbers are down, uh, 166,000 new businesses created, but virtually 100% of that was driven by 20 metropolitan counties. <laughs> so that the net change in new businesses in rural counties since the Great Recession has been effectively zero, you know, and so it's not a surprise that folks are struggling in these places. In any case, we have a fantastic guest today who's going to talk to us about all of this stuff. He's a senior economist at the Center for American Progress, Banga Adjalore, and he's done a lot of really interesting work talking about rural America. My name is Benga Ajalori. I'm a senior economist at the Center for American Progress. I have a couple of reports and pieces about rural America. One was in Democracy Journal called COVID and Rural America. Basically talks about how COVID impacts rural America and the way out in a post-COVID recovery for rural America. And then a report that talked about what Congress needs to do and why they need to help out rural America through federal fiscal policy and to combat both the public health crisis and the economic crisis. Talking about rural America actually is one of our favorite subjects because it's such an important challenge for this country in particular, which is so sort of geographically large and, inc and includes so much territory that is rural. But let's start first with how you define rural because th that's not as simple as it might seem. No, it's actually kind of like the million dollar question. Talking with some other rural advocates, they've talked about how there's actually up to 13 different definitions of rural America. And so, you know, when you talk about rural America, I always start with the basic definition uh, from the Office of Managing Bud Budget, where it's basically based off of population. And it's basically a simple definition as a place that's not a metropolitan statistical area. And so population cut off of 50,000. So any place 50,000 above, is called a metro area and anything below would be rural. And so what's funny about that is that it kind of shows the problem with how we look at rural communities, because 
that basic definition is relative to urban areas, that we don't define rural as itself. It's as in, well, it's not urban, it's not a metro area, therefore it's rural. And then it gets kind of shuttered away. And that's kind of, you know, a lot of the work that I've done, a lot of the work that we've done at CAP has been really to try to push past the myths about rural America, about the narrative that we have. And a lot of the problem is because we define everything in terms of cities and metro areas. Do you happen to know what percent of the American population lives in rural areas standardly defined, plus or minus? So roughly, it'd be probably in the mid 20%. And so that's one of the other issues is that it's not highly populated. One of the other definitions of uh, rurality is based off population density. Right. And so these places are not as dense as cities. And so we have a broader area of region. So one of the things is that it's about 20 to say 25% of the population, but it's 72% of the land mass. Right. That, that, that leads to those, those uh, handy all red electoral maps. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. See, but the problem with those electoral maps is that it might be red, but we don't know if that's 5248 or 955. Yeah, right. It's just red. You know, we have studied this question really, really hard because it's sort of our view that the divide between urban and rural is one of the great challenges to American democracy. And getting worse. I yeah, mean, the, right. Uh, the spatial inequality has right. uh, increased dramatically since the Great Recession. That's right. And in our own analysis, one of the most surprising findings was, and this basically speaks to the myth-making that you were, uh, you were alluding to, uh, is that your image of a rural community is a bunch of small businesses employing most people. When in fact, if you do the analysis, the majority of citizens in small towns are working for giant, either giant agribusinesses or Walmart, or Exxon, or Bank of America. Definitely. Right? It's really striking that in non-urban areas, people over-index for working for large corporations. It's big cities where more people work for small businesses. Oh, it definitely is. And one of the things we you know, talked about in some of our work, we have a piece last, they wrote last year called The Modern Company Town. And we talk about you know, labor market monopsony and like this rise in labor market concentration. Now, there's a lot of academic work on monopsony and a lot of us found that labor market concentration that is actually decreased over time. But if you look at rural communities, it's actually increased. Right. It's because you have these large firms knowing that they can move into these small rural towns, dominate the market, and then be able to exert market power. Right. What we see is not just agribusiness, but if you look at meatpacking plants, there was a big move of meatpacking plants in the last century from large cities so like a Chicago to a smaller town where they could be the dominant uh, industry. Right. So we that throughout a lot of rural communities. And when you coupled that with the sort of massive amount of corporate consolidation that happened over these, the sort of the neoliberal era, you end up with this terrible circumstance where you know, the anchor companies that made rural places prosperous have been consolidated away to be replaced by these outposts of giant multinational corporations that exploit people. Definitely. 
And and they're not just, by the way, you know, to make it clear, the monopsony power is not just in terms of uh, the labor market. It's also in the commodity market. Most uh, farmers have only one or two large companies to sell their product to. So, you know, a, a Tyson can basically dictate not just the prices in the uh, for chicken growers, but uh, also the growing practices. Exactly. The farmers are feeling the squeeze on both ends where they are dictated. They have those contracts, especially I think in the pork markets too, in seed mm -hmm. markets. So they give them like dictate these contracts to them of like, this is how you're going to do things. This is where you sell it. And farmers don't have options of like, well, I'm actually just going to go to the other person because there is no other person. One of the problems with these rural communities, and this kind of falls into the political aspect of it, is that you have all this wealth that's actually generated in these rural communities, but that wealth gets extracted out. Right. Doesn't stay in, doesn't come back in. So these communities say, well, we are being left behind, and they are. Right. There's no good policies being promoted, being pushed to actually keep some of that wealth in the community. Right. Absolutely. And then, as if things weren't bad enough, uh, along comes COVID-19. And then what happened? And so... One of the things that people talk about COVID-19 is hit these rural communities. Their case counts are high. The death counts, especially now, are surpassing the ones that were in New York City in April and March. And a lot of people are talking about, well, we need to help these, these communities out. But when I talk about the impact of the pandemic, I always like to go back to the Great Recession. Because these communities, as all the communities throughout the country, were hit hard, but the recovery left them behind. And so I wrote a report last fall looking at employment growth and labor force participation. And the levels at 2017, 2018 were lower than they were in the Great Recession. And so they actually hadn't recovered by the time the pandemic hit. And it just hit certain communities even harder. So we look at uh, African-American areas in the South and the rural South. We looked at tribal communities in the Southwest, especially Arizona and Mexico. They've been devastated by this pandemic and there's no help to be found. I think one of the, in, in your writing, one of the places that I think you've really usefully explored is uh, company formation in these places, in rural places, relative to big cities. And it has been horrendous. It has been. Going back to the Great Recession, you're looking at business dynamics. This was kind of a work kind of following what uh, the Economic Innovation Group had done before, saying that over the past, say, 50 years, that business dynamics has decreased since then, especially since the Great Recession. So I was looking at rural communities and you find that just there aren't new, new businesses growing in these communities. And in some places, there are some areas that uh, tourist areas, recreation type communities that have done all right, but there is no business growth in these rural communities. And a lot of that is because they don't have access to capital. Venture capital only goes to certain cities. Uh, Brookings, I know, did a lot of research during that, you know, you have these superstar cities, the San Francisco, San Diego's, Boston, where all the venture capital goes to. And so investment money doesn't go into these rural communities and these communities don't have access to capital because a lot of times there's not a lot of banks, not a lot of financial institutions in these places that would support entrepreneurial activity in these places. And this is something we've talked about a lot on this podcast that the problem is deeper than a lack of access to capital because in an increasingly technological society where most of the business activity requires 
either the deployment of technology or the development of technology in order to create value, you know, standing up those businesses in rural places is exceedingly hard because the rate of innovation is basically inextricably tied to the density of the network of innovators you can create. And, you know, Amazon.com was never going to put HQ2 in a rural community ever, ever, you know, it was just a joke that people ever thought that that was plausible and almost no technology innovator or entrepreneur is going to move to a small town with no labor pool with advanced skills to start one of these businesses. It's just exceedingly hard. I mean, there is a silver lining, maybe the beginnings of a silver lining to COVID, which is that it has massively advanced both our ability to work remotely, but also our willingness to do it. And so there is a glimmer of hope there. I know, Benga, in in the Democracy Journal piece, the first thing you suggest is expanding Medicaid, or I suppose you you could go broader and just say, hey, universal health care of some sort. Uh, it, it talk a little right. bit about how important this is in, in uh, rural communities in particular. So talking about silver linings, one thing that this pandemic has shown is shown the cracks in the system and how these all the communities and not just rural communities have been vulnerable. And so when we look at expanding Medicaid, what we're talking about here is not just about providing health care for all residents so that when they do get sick, they're able to go see a doctor, they're able to go get medical care, but expansion of Medicaid also helps out hospitals and helps out with their costs. And so one of the biggest problems that we've had over the last 10, 15 years is hospital closures. They've had a lot of difficulties in terms of financing their operation. And one thing that Medicaid does is it helps out with a lot of the unfunded uh, care that the hospitals provide. Um, one of the things, the stats I always like to quote is that 90% of hospital closures happen in rural communities. And so if you look at expanding Medicaid, it helps these hospitals stay afloat so that they can provide care. So when this pandemic hits, these rural communities are able to tackle it and able to get the, have the beds, have the resources to be able to tackle that. So once you have that taken care of, then you have that healthy population. And then even then be able to provide services. So if you, one of the things we talk about in terms of rural communities is population decline. And if you don't have hospitals or if your hospitals lose, say their OB practices, young couples are not gonna wanna move to that area if they don't have the healthcare. And so expansion of Medicaid or even going bigger to universal healthcare is gonna help that and help these rural communities at least survive. Right. So, so, so to be clear, it's it's not just about improving healthcare in these communities. Um, it's about creating a healthy economy. You you can't have a healthy yes. local economy without a healthy local healthcare system. Exactly. And that's a twofer, uh, if I may say so, because obviously people uh, will not move to a place where healthcare is absent. No person is going to stand up a company in a place where healthcare is absent, but also a big, effective regional hospital is an incredible economic anchor for a place. Right, right. <laughs> right. Definitely. Like, I mean, you know, so a deliberate effort to bring high quality healthcare to rural regions uh, is, you know, like there's a lot of benefits to that that go around. It definitely is. The second thing you, you recommended in the Democracy Journal piece was uh, strengthening worker power, collective bargaining and such. 
explain that's why that's so important to rural workers. People need to be able to have quality job and therefore to be able to afford services. And so it's not even just about pay, but as we're talking about with healthcare, you know, being able to have benefits, paid sick leave, paid family medical leave, which was, as we found, was really important during this pandemic, that if you have a family member who gets sick or if you get sick, that you're able to take time off, paid time off. Uh, you're looking at collective bargaining, uh, being able to counteract. So we talked about monopsony. We talked about these large dominant firms that uh, artificially suppress wages low. But then if you have strong collective bargaining, if you have unions, there's going to be that counterweight against those large firms. And therefore, it kind of, when people have better benefits, higher pay, that's money that goes back into the economy. Uh, one thing, there was a study done a number of years ago in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, wage theft. So where people are, the wages are uh, taken away or they're not paid as much as they should be, cost the economy of Hattiesburg $10 billion. And so that's money that's not just going through, circling through the economy, but that's also tax base. And that helps out the government, the local governments to be able to spend money. So having strong worker power is benefit, not just for the worker themselves, but for the community as a whole. Right. When a, when a Walmart or, Mac, or a McDonald's is paying seven twenty five an hour uh, in one of these communities, they're extracting a lot of wealth out. When they're forced to pay $15 an hour, that's extra money staying in the community, being spent at other local businesses. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. One of the things I noticed in, I don't know if you saw the Netflix series, Stranger Things, a lot of yes. people my age loved it because, you know, we recognized the 80s. Uh, in there. And uh, one of the things that was interesting is one of the characters essentially raises two kids working at a local uh, variety store. You couldn't imagine a clerk at a Walmart being able to maintain a house and two children today. No, and, no and, not at all. And that's, and that's what replaced those locally owned uh, stores uh, right. on Main Street. And all of that has happened over the past 40 years. It has. And it's interesting that you bring up Stranger Things because that store in that most recent season was actually losing business because they opened that new mall. Right. And so that was kind of the start of the process that, you know, in 20 years in Hawkins, there's going to be a Walmart and then we're going to see the mall being hauled out. And so we've, that's kind of like the start of it. Right. And, and that is what has happened all over the country. The, the, the malls destroyed Main Street and then the big box stores destroyed the malls. Yes. And, and the work and everybody destroyed the middle class. <laughs> right. Which segues into, into your third recommendation in that piece, which is uh, breaking up monopolies, uh, addressing monopoly power in rural areas. Yeah. And that's just kind of goes along with the worker power on the other side is that we've had these corporate consolidation and we've had that these, especially if you look at the agriculture industry with seeds and pork producers and these conglomerates are able then to put the squeeze on farmers on both ends, and it makes it harder for these farms to do well. But then it's also, we look at the meat packing plants, and this is the thing that kind of falls into, goes back to the worker power issue, is that these firms have forced these workers to go back to work, even though COVID had spread rapidly. And so we see, you know, if you look at some of the data over the March, April, May, you look at the counties that had the highest uh, outbreaks and the top ones, it was either a meatpacking plant, a prison, or a nursing home that was driving that. And so it's not just about what's happening in those plants, 
but then those people go back home and then it spreads through there and it goes throughout the community. And so, you know, some of the research I'm doing right now is looking at federal government and what's happening with the decrease in uh, enforcement. So we look at the rules and the fact that OSHA is, you know, been diminished. They can't push these meatpacking plants to enforce worker protection, safety, hazard pay, things like that. And that's some of the problems that's happening in these rural communities. And that's why if you break up these firms and have them compete over each other, then that's going to bring back more safety, higher benefits, and help out workers and thereby help out the community. And finally, let's get to the fourth area you've recommended addressing, and and that is particularly salient uh, today uh, with what's going on. Uh, We still have the protests in the street, and it would be addressing uh, racial discrimination in these communities. And you know, it speaks to one of those myths about the demographics. There's actually very large non-white communities in rural areas. There very much are. And that is reason why I kind of bring that up is that it kind of undergirds all the other issues is that we're able to push these anti-competitive policies. We're able to push these, you know, policies by, because we use race as a divisive tool. Mm-hmm. And if are able to address these issues of structural racism or other uh, sorts of uh, systemic inequality, then we're able to say, okay, we can't use race as a divisor, divider anymore. And therefore we kind of get this common collective solidarity. One of the things about rural communities is that there's a lot of benefits to living in a rural community. And you know, some, of that, some of these assets are like community social capital. But when you use race as a divider, that minimizes the benefit of that rural community. And so if we're able to have this you know, kind of class consciousness and say, okay, we need to actually compete against the top 1%. We need to have more benefits spread out through the lower 99% by you know, focusing on worker protection, by having more expansive public services like expanding Medicaid, uh, to have antitrust and other ways of breaking up these firms. This is gonna have benefits for rural communities, for all the residents, for the area. And that's why we have to focus on racial discrimination and actually really face up to it and use that to help us benefit. Can we talk for just two seconds about the CARES Act? It included some funding. Yes. Uh, but what else do we need to do? So think about the CARES Act that was actually frustrating for rural advocates is that there was money for state and local governments. However, it was very restricted and limited. So one was there's money that went to states and then to cities of population of 500,000 and more. So any city with a smaller population got left out. Right. So there was nothing for these rural communities. There was money for education and for healthcare that rural communities were able to benefit from, but it wasn't a lot. The other thing was there was $8 billion that was dedicated for tribal communities for them to combat this uh, pandemic. But the administration is actually holding on to that money and these communities are having to sue them to be able to get that money. So even though the CARES Act was passed months ago, these communities still haven't seen that $8 billion. Wow. So now we're looking, talking about what we should do. And, you know, the HEROES Act that was passed uh, two months ago, I think now, had money to state local governments, money that would go to all the counties so that rural communities were part of it. But the Republican plan has nothing outside of education spending to go to rural communities. And so one of the things that we really have to see is significant state and local relief because this pandemic has hit them on two ends. 
So one, they have increased spending to combat the COVID crisis. But then because of loss of jobs, high unemployment, small business closures, they've lost a lot of income tax revenue. Plus people are not spending money, so they're losing sales tax revenue. So the revenue base has dropped while their costs have gone up. And unlike the federal government, most states have a balanced budget requirement. So they have these budget shortfalls that they have to close and they have to make up. And the money in CARES too, that went to state and local governments was restricted from being used to cover these shortfalls. So what would have been helpful about the HEROES Act is that that state and local government relief would have helped them close those shortfalls, but there's no money for that. So they've had to make cuts elsewhere, which has impacts throughout in the education, um, health, all these different police, fire, these services have to be cut to make up for the massive budget shortfall. So what has to happen now in terms of fiscal relief is a lot of money going to state and local governments to cover these shortfalls and to help them you know, combat this crisis and figure out what's gonna happen in the fall. Interesting. So Benga, one of the concluding questions we always ask people is the, um, what do we call it, Goldie? The, the, the uh, benevolent dictator the, question. Yeah, the benevolent dictator question, which is, if you were in charge, what would you do about this problem? And, and, and this is no constraints, no political or financial constraints. How, what would you do to address this? I actually have a simple answer to this question. Universal broadband. Every home be, have, have high-speed internet. And what that would do is solve a lot of problems, especially that we've seen in this pandemic. So we think about remote, remote work and working from home. A lot of places can't do that. We think about remote education, which we're probably gonna have to do this fall at schools. And a lot of kids don't have access to that. But if we had universal broadband, that money could be spent elsewhere. And then when you talk about, you know, Amazon's not gonna go, our business is not gonna go to rural communities. If we have universal broadband, then people may wanna go there because there's, you know, lower cost of living, yeah. might be smaller. And if you, but you, but if you don't have that broadband- It's impossible. It's gonna be impossible. So I think universal broadband, you know, having every home with high-speed internet be a great start to solving a lot of the problems that we have. It's awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us and for your work on this incredibly important problem. Uh, it's not likely to go away soon. And <laughs> you think? Uh, yeah. And uh, for sure, uh, it is a tremendous challenge to our democracy because if you live in a country where the folks in 75% of the territory are being left behind by the economy all the time. It is going to be very difficult to build consensus around politics and policy. And if you live in a country where 75% of the folks and are being of the country, the real estate is being left behind and we have a constitution that overrepresents uh, the residents of small rural states who are being left behind. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah. Are you creating yes. a bad situation? Yes. You are. That's right. But I think there's a solution. I think we can do this. We just have to promote the right policies, get a better sense of who lives in rural America, and actually speak to them. Banga is, you know, definitely on the right track here. I think it's really important to understand precisely what we mean when we both think and talk about rural America. And it's definitely, to, to his point, not just a middle-aged white dude on a tractor in a field. Right. Uh, it's much more complex than that. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we have to do to get on top of this very, very serious problem. 
What I find encouraging about this is that a lot of the things that should be done can be done, and they're not much different from uh, the things we need to do to uh, help uh, working Americans uh, throughout the country. Uh, he talked about expanding Medicaid. Well, I think you and I agree that there should be some kind of universal health care throughout the country. Correct. To another point that I think is overlooked in these rural areas where, and it's an amazing number, that 90%, 90% of the hospital closures in America have been in rural areas. And right. that's because, you know, it's not a good business. It's just, right. it's not a good business model to have a rural hospital where a lot of your beds are going to be left empty for yes. uh, uh, much of the time. And it's hard to attract doctors and nurses. And it takes forever for people to get there because, you know, they got to drive across, in you know, miles and miles of, of rural roads. So who wants to open a hospital there when you can open one up in a uh, suburban or urban area. So if you're going to leave it to the market, the market is not going to serve these areas in the same way. Right. And he brought up at the end, uh, broadband, they're not serving those areas for a reason. And they're not serving them for the same reason that the uh, electric uh, utilities did not serve rural America during the Great Depression and before. Why we had to have rural electrification, basically uh, led by, paid for, funded, financed, by the federal government. Same thing was with telephone service. We had, we were all paying this universal service charge, just like $5 a month on our bills, which was to pay to subsidize phone service throughout America in the rural areas yeah. where there isn't the same return on, on your investment right. buck. So if it doesn't pay for private companies to do broadband, well, then we need some sort of municipal broadband, county broadband, state broadband, federal government broadband, if that's what it takes. You just can't leave it to the market if the market decides it can't make a buck there. Right. Uh, and the other, you know, I think the other thing that he hit, and we have spent a ton of time working on this, is just worker power and decent wages in these rural communities, which tend to be dominated either by some giant exploitive multinational that has monopsony power in the area, or just Walmarts and McDonald's and all the big companies, all the big service companies that replaced all the small businesses that used to be in these small towns, uh, in these small and medium-sized towns. And, you know, I think this is a great time to recall this uh, idea that we've had called progressive labor standards, which is a very simple but powerful policy framework in which you impose labor standards, essentially not geographically, where you have a high, for instance, a high minimum wage in the city and a lower one in the country because, quote unquote, the living standards are lower, but by company size, where the largest companies pay the highest wages irrespective of their locations. And if, for instance, you raise the minimum wage to $20 an hour for all large corporations, that would instantaneously transform the economies of every small town in America because the employment is totally dominated by these big companies. And instead of those companies essentially extracting prosperity from those geographies, they would be injecting prosperity right. into those geographies. And that huge agribusiness couldn't exploit those workers. It would actually have to pay them fairly. And now all of a sudden you have a base upon which you can actually build a local economy. 
We've talked about this before, Dick, that there's studies that show that when Walmart moves into a rural county, the average wages for uh, retail workers and grocery workers in particular go down. Not just right. at Walmart, but at all uh, stores because uh, Walmart- You have to compete. That's right. And they're forcing down wages. Now, right. imagine, imagine if you have this rural county struggling economically and a Walmart comes in and instead of paying $7.25 an hour or $9 an hour or whatever they are now, $11 an hour, they're paying $15 an hour. They're, or paying, they're paying more. They're paying right. more than the local businesses were paying. Right. What's right. going to happen in that community? That is a net plus because the people that work at Walmart are going to be making more money and they're going to be spending it in the community. And the right. other businesses around there, they're going to be competing for workers. They're going to right. be doing better because there's more money being spent in the in the community. But now they need to compete for workers and they're going to have to pay more. And it's that virtuous cycle we keep talking about, that when workers make more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers and more importantly, pay them more. That's right. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.